Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 28th, 2022. I'm broadcasting today from New York City, which accounts for the hotel room background. Apologies for those of you who demand professional standards. Um, last week, we did an interesting show with Joe Weisberg. He's been on the show a couple of times. He's quite critical, I think, of the current American policy towards Russia. He's one of Russia's great voices, I think a legitimate voice in terms of standing up for uh, the Russians. Um, he is an interesting man. He's the author of a new book, Russia Upside Down, an exit strategy for the Second Cold War. To be fair to Joe, he's not a, an apologist for Putin or anything like that, but he does offer an interesting opinion. Many of you will be familiar with him because he was the um, originator, the founder, and the, the first scriptwriter on the Americans, a uh, very popular uh, television show about spying, about ordinary people, ordinary quote-unquote Americans, of course, they didn't turn out to be Americans, who were, in fact, uh, Russian spies. It's an interesting take on the spying business. It's le carré-esque in the sense that it, I think, treats spying as equally despicable, what whichever side you're on. But there is of course, a moral quality to spying. There's another real American spy, a man called Robert Hansen, who did indeed, he was an FBI agent, and he did indeed spy for the Russians. He wasn't an invention. He didn't come out of the imagination of a man like Joe Weisberg. And there's a wonderful new book out about Hansen. It's called A, Sp uh, a Spy in Plain Sight, uh, the inside story of the FBI and Robert Hansen, America's most damaging Russian spy. And I'm thrilled that Lise is joining us. Uh, Lise, where are you today? I'm in Santa Barbara, California. Oh, well, you look at- The other as, side of the coast. Of the, you look of the, as, of the, as yeah. and Californian as you can be. Liz, um, I introduced this fictional spying series, The Americans. Your book is a very dark book about, about a, a traitor, isn't it? There's nothing romantic. There's nothing, um, there's nothing sympathetic about this man, Hanson. No, absolutely not. I mean, he carried on a, a double life, you know, to everybody that knew him or thought they knew him. He was this devout Catholic, married with five kids, uh, hated the commies, as he called them. And he was at the top level of the FBI counter espionage division in New York and DC in Russia, you know? So he had top level access to all of our intel, all of our national secrets having to do with Russia. Um, you're not the first person to write a book about Hansen, uh, but your book has been acclaimed so far. It's out next week by Publishers Weekly and by Kirkus. They both starred it, suggesting uh, it's the best treatment on Hansen so far. What are you? revealing about Hanson that hasn't been said before? Is it just your broader treatment that they're liking, do you think? Well, th first of all, that's great that they, I'm getting great reviews. I, you know, you always wait for those and hope for those. Um, but what I really set out to do was find the truth out about this case and given some kind of, give it some sort of historical context because Hanson was arrested 
more than 20 years ago. So the agents and officers that worked on that case have had time to mull over and think about what they did and what they did right, what they did wrong, where the FBI needs to go now. And it's personal for me because my my dad was an FBI agent and was an FBI agent during the Hanson era. And, you know, I grew up hearing about this guy who uh, was just really, you know, the worst kind of traitor and, and had such a black mark on the FBI uh, for years. I mean, still does. I mean, you know, I got to say, Andrew, that, you know, 99.9% of FBI agents out there, line agents, you know, who are just doing their job are putting their lives at risk every day for our safety and doing a great job. But it's, you know, one bad apple like Robert Hansen that just besmirches the whole agency. And I wanted to know more about the case, find out more from the sources. And I was able, you know, very fortunately to get to the people that worked on the case, obviously, but also his psychiatrist, his best friend, his uh, brother-in-law who tried to turn him in, who was also an FBI agent. So I got to, you know, really the key people in this entire case. Yeah, I was intrigued uh, with uh, his story. Your book is a wonderful read. You know, his, his narrative, at least borrowing from Wikipedia, sounds so all-American, it could almost be invented. Apparently, he wanted to be a dentist. It was lucky, I guess, for all of us that he didn't turn out to be a dentist, Liz, is it? Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he would have been a better dentist than an FBI agent, because he was certainly an awful FBI agent. But yeah, he had a, he had a fairly quote-unquote, normal upbringing. His father was a Chicago police officer. Uh, there are many accounts that the father was brutal to him. I mean... Yeah, know. but that doesn't... Uh, yeah, that, that's in the book and that's in the right. Wikipedia entry, but that doesn't justify or even of explain. Just not. because you had a bullying father, many people, many of us have bullying of parents. Not. Of course not. And I was a federal prosecutor for years and, you know, people in sentencing phases would say I was beaten by my father and my mother had a horrible upbringing. But, but Andrew, you're exactly right. I mean, that doesn't excuse it. That might explain some of the behavior, but it doesn't excuse it because we all live in a society built around rules and Hanson violated the most fundamental rules about just, you know, he took an oath to protect this country and he did exactly the opposite of that. So yeah, it's funny. Um, I guess not funny, chilling that on Google, which doesn't of course curate its information, they describe uh, Hansen as a public servant. I guess formerly he was a public servant. He was anything but a public servant, wasn't he? Uh, Absolutely. Lynch. I mean that that real that persona that he was exuding to people was completely false because within his first year at the FBI, he approached the Russians. He approached the Russians, not the other way around. He said, "I have information for you." Didn't identify himself as Robert Hansen or, or you know, an FBI agent, but said, "I have information for you." That first intel, that first message that he gave over, was about a top-level Russian asset that we had. What are Russian assets? They're people that we flip that are in Russia that now are spying for us. We do this in China, North Korea, you know, everywhere we can, and we need that information. So his first intel to the Russians was information about a top Russian asset that we had. What happened? The man was executed. And I mean, brutal. Well, this is uh, Polyakov, right? Yes, yes, Polyakov. yes. Also known as Top Hat. That was his name that the FBI had given him. Is there and, an element, um, Liz, you're obviously a woman, is there an element of boys' games farce, which, of course, Le Carre exposed so brilliantly in his many novels? Um, 
with the with the code names and and and, and the childish misinformation um or were there many women involved in this too I'm, I'm curious also as to your take and this is another issue of, of his wife and how much she knew right uh well yes there was a james bond element to all of this and i know that from his best friend jack Hauschauer, who i talked to for many 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 times and jack told me that hansen as he was growing up idolized james bond you know wanted everything about James Bond, the gadgets and rescuing damsels in distress. All of that was very appealing to Hanson. And I think was later a part of his motivation. As far as Bonnie goes, we know that she knew something early on because she at one point went into a drawer, you know, like a soft drawer or an underwear drawer or something like that, pulled it out and there was all this cash. And she confronted Hanson about it. This was early on in his spine. She confronted Hanson about it she was concerned that it was another woman because he'd had affairs and you know the book gets into a little bit about that but she was concerned about that he said no i'm not having an affair this isn't money for you know to keep a mistress this is money that i've gotten from the russians from spying so bonnie obviously was upset and they both went to their put it mildly Lisa. <laughs> yeah he was upset but no, I, you actually, confront so your you confront your husband and he admits that he's a russian spy i mean yeah, but yeah, but she was more concerned that it was, you know, his, for his mistress. So, well, how does that reflect on her? I mean, if, oh, are, are you married? And you know, well, but here's what happens. So. I mean, if I, I mean, I'm sure if my wife confronted me, and uh, you know, the choice was whether I was a Russian spy or a, a, a mistress, she'd probably prefer the mistress. She wouldn't be thrilled with the mistress bit, but Russian spy is pretty bad, isn't it? It's pretty bad. But they so they went to a Catholic priest. And the Catholic priest said, you know, that's terrible. Don't spy again. But, but, but if you want to absolve yourself, don't worry about going to the authorities about it. Just give the money that you've gotten from the Russians to the church. Oh, my God. So the church is implicated here, too. Well, one priest is. And so they did that. Hansen, you know, gave like $30,000 to the church. And he stopped spying for a little bit, but only for a little bit. And then we don't think that Bonnie... You know, she may have known, but she didn't have any evidence after that. Yeah, but Liz, uh, let's go over the financials here, because ultimately here was a, this is, in a sense, an all-American story in that here was a guy, he didn't believe in the Soviet or the post-Soviet system. He simply wanted money, right? He wanted money, but I think it was more than that. I mean, we alluded to it a minute ago. He loved the James Bond, you know, sort of the thrill, the excitement all of, of all of this. So that was part of it, that glamour. Also, he felt like he was underappreciated at the job. He felt like the FBI agents around him, you know, didn't appreciate him enough. And he didn't fit in. He was, they called him the mortician because he always wore black and had this kind of dour expression. So he didn't join in social events and things like that, the FBI, the camaraderie that they had. So he felt underappreciated at his job. He loved the glamour and the money. And I also think there was a part of him that the narcissist in him that, you know, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm smarter than any of these FBI agents around me who are actually kind of dullards. And I'll show them by doing this. There was that. He felt appreciated by the Russians. They sent flowery letters about their friendship and all of this. And I also think, this I know from his psychiatrist, because I spoke with his psychiatrist as well, that Hansen, in a warped sense, and it's completely warped, but you have to kind of think like this, um, thought that by 
giving over American secrets to the Russians, we would actually be shown our weaknesses and therefore would become a better country in the long run. Crazy thinking, but that's, I think, part of what he thought, according to a psychiatrist. How much were they giving him? How much money was actually involved in this? You know, over 20 years, it's hard to say exactly. There were drops of 10,000, 50,000, you know, but even if you add all those up, let's say you're at a million dollars over 20 years, there were some diamonds as well. Um, it's a lot, but it's not the kind of, well, let me give you an example. It's not the kind of money that he potentially could have gotten. We paid $7 million to a Russian who gave us information about Hansen that we were finally able to track Hansen down. For that information, I confirmed that it was a $7 million buy from the FBI and the CIA. So he made less money than did the, than did the spy that turned him in eventually over after 20 years. What did he do with the diamonds? You know, he, he, he buried some of it. He gave some of it away. He gave his, Bonnie was all, Bonnie, that's his wife, was only told to pay for things in cash. You know, because you can't, anything over $10,000 is going to raise a bank's question mark when you take cash in like that. So he couldn't just take it to a bank. So he spent it, or Bonnie spent it. You know, now, should she have raised questions about the cash? Maybe. Um, but she was a housewife taking care of five kids, and they all went to private school, so that had to get paid for. So Hanson just kind of dribbled it out little by little. What are the lessons here, the serious moral lessons? I know you're quite critical of the national security infrastructure. You think that this story reveals profound weaknesses um, in our national defense. I do. Ah, meaning Americans. I mean, you were born in Australia too, but you're now essentially American, right? No, no, I, I lived for a year in Australia. Oh, I okay. In Australia, but no, I, I got my master's there, but I, I was born um, here in the United States in Seattle. So yes, I mean, there are lots of security implications. When I asked all of these FBI agents and CIA officers, you know, an obvious question, could there be another Hanson today? The response was not so obvious. It was 100%, Andrew, 100% said yes. And then many of them, unprompted by me, followed up with, and there probably already is. Now, that's pretty chilling, especially when you think about our relationship with Russia right now, vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Um, what can be done about it? You know, more security checks, more polygraphs, more financial disclosures. None of those things were done with Hansen. He wasn't polygraphed in 20 years. His security clearance was not updated. When I was a prosecutor, mine was updated in the fifth year. So things like that. But on the other hand, and they have implemented some of those. On the other hand, though, spying is easier today than it has ever been. Because in Hansen's era, he went to the Xerox machine. I mean, it was low tech. He went to the Xerox machine, was copying things off of the Xerox machine and taking them out of his briefcase. Today, you wouldn't need to do that. You know, you just put it on a thumbnail drive, you send it to the cloud, and you walk out of there without anybody suspecting anything if you have that top-level security clearance. Liz, Michael Lewis wrote a wonderful book, The Fifth Risk, about the way in which Trump, the Trump administration in particular, essentially looted or undermined or blew up the bureaucratic state in the United States. To what extent is this, and I use these words carefully, the, the neoliberal assault on the state, on bureaucracy, on public service, 
to what extent should this kind of story be a wake-up call for those people who simply don't believe in the idea of authority or the state? Well, it should be a wake-up call because, you know, if, first of all, you have to look at the top of the administration, right? If the administration is cozying up with somebody like a Putin, then the message that can be sent down, again, you have to think in kind of a war perspective. You have to think like a criminal or would be would be spy is it's okay. You know, if it's sort of sanctioned at the very top level. So we have to make sure that doesn't happen. But we also need to, to understand that we rely on the intel that we get from these Russian assets. I'm just using Russia as example because we do it in other countries to find out what that government is plotting or planning to do against us. We need that information. We need to keep those assets alive and giving us information for our own national security because we're not going to just get it from, you know, what the politicians tell us is going on. We need to get down and dirty and know what's actually going on on the ground. Liz, you're a, a veteran of, I want to say, right-wing media. You certainly have, have, have spent some of your life uh, working for Fox. You were involved in a high-profile uh, case against Bill O'Reilly. Are you concerned with the highly isolationist wing of the Republican Party? Um, perhaps not so much in the context of this Hansen case, but the way in which there seems to be a, a degree, at least on the part of people like Tucker Carlson, on a, a moral equivalency between Putin's Russia and America? Well, again, we don't want the message that, you know, we're cozying up to Russia to be what's out there. And that, because you have to put yourself, Andrew, in the mind of a would-be spy. You know, they're going to be looking for anything that says, hey, it's okay to do this. And if we have a close relationship with Russia or, you know, it seems to the person that's thinking about spying, well, then it's sort of a nod to say, you know, it's really all right to be doing that. And to go with Hansen's theory of, well, if I, you know, if I give over these secrets and we find our weaknesses, we'll actually be a better country. That you don't want anything that is going to go into somebody's mind that says that's okay, because it's not obviously in any context. It certainly isn't. The, the, the moral dimension of this is, is shocking. You suggest that uh, Hansen was involved in the death of Brian Kelly, a CIA officer. Did he have any moral ambivalence about this? Did he understand in any way of the, the, the terrible damage he was doing to so many people, innocent people's lives? I don't think so. I think he was happy when Brian Kelly was targeted. Brian Kelly, as you just put up on the screen, was a CIA agent at the time that this was all going on. So the FBI and the CIA realized, because Russian assets were dying, that there was a mole amongst them. But they targeted the wrong guy. They targeted Brian Kelly, a CIA agent. Now, to be fair to the FBI, there were more spies at that time in the CIA than in the FBI. But the FBI... And, you know, I say this in the book, they didn't really, and, and they, they acknowledge this now, they didn't really turn inward and look inward and say, you know, it could be an FBI agent. They were all too happy to finger the wrong guy, Brian Kelly. And I spoke with Kelly's widow, Patricia McCarthy, and she said, you know, the allegations that were national and international in scope, you know, really, really killed him. 
I mean, not right at the time, not like a shot, but it killed him. It just broke him down because here was a guy who'd spent his whole entire professional life trying to be, you know, upstanding CIA agent, you know, keeping us safe and all of that. And he was wrongfully targeted in, in retrospect, in large part, because the FBI didn't want to think it would be one of their own. Liz, how does he compare and contrast with the other high profile spy uh, Aldrich Ames in the CIA? Are they comparable in any way? They're comparable, but I think Hansen's worse because his spying lasted for so long. I mean, 20 years of giving over, over information, including plans of a top secret nuclear plan, uh, plan that we were thinking about doing, you know, to the Russians. So thwarting different plans, blood was shed, you know, because of the information that he gave over, people were executed in Russia. So I think the breadth and the scope of what Hansen did is even worse than an Ames, for example. Although they're, you know, they're kind of all together. But yeah, I mean, making moral comparisons, I think, is a that's hard rather, to do. Yeah, and it's rather childish and really undermines. I mean, they were both both traitors in a profound way. Uh, he uh, Hansen avoided execution. I mean, should we celebrate that in any way? <laughs> Well, he avoided execution because at the time, the attorney general, FBI, CIA agreed that it was more important to get the information from him of what he had turned over than to execute him because obviously treason is, you know, death penalty kind of case. And so they decided that it was more important to get from him what intel they could and also from Bonnie. They debriefed Bonnie. And per both of their plea agreements, they can never talk about, you know, anything again. So they couldn't talk to me. Um, but Hansen's not exactly living a, a great life. I mean, he's in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day at this Supermax facility in Florence, Colorado. He only gets out one hour a day out of, out of uh, you know, solitary. Uh, he's also there with the Unabomber. So in that one hour, who knows, maybe they're hanging out. Kind of scary and uh, I'm not sure if he has access to the internet, but if, if he did have the uh, pleasure of watching this show, Liz, what would you say to him? Oh, what would I say to him? You know, you're the worst kind of traitor. You took an oath to protect your country and you lied, you mis, mis uh, you hurt people, you kill people. I mean, I, I just, I would have nothing but disgust for him. I mean, there's there's just no redeeming value in him. He mistreated people all along the way. And, you know, he's just kind of the worst sort of traitor that we've ever had. Yeah, he's it's a shocking story. Um, as you say, it's, maybe we would have been better off if it had been a dentist. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't want him working on my teeth, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to go to a guy like that. He'd probably be in league with Satan or something. Uh, Liz, uh, you're a prolific writer. You've written many books, nonfiction and fiction alike. Uh, did you ever consider turning this into fiction? The art of writing nonfiction spy books um, is an interesting one. It's, uh, it's something that really does sort of is it can be thought of in the context of fiction, partly, I guess, because not everything can be proved one way or the other. How, how do you differentiate fiction and nonfiction as a writer, and particularly in the context of a spy in, place, in plain sight? Well, nonfiction, obviously, you can't make anything up. 
So it requires so much research. I mean, I spent more than two years doing the research for this to get all of the sources, to track them down, to get them to talk to me. And then you have this huge mass, right, of raw data. And then the trick, at least for me, was how do I take this and spin a story, you know, tell a story. So when you're reading it, it can almost feel like fiction. You know, the, the chapters are short, they move quickly. Um, I'm trying to put together a story and tell you a story about this guy so that when you read it, it's not like you're reading, you know, some historical treatise, right? You're, right. you're reading something that's fun, but, and, and I kind of want my, my hope would be that when you're reading it, you almost forget that it's, that it's really happened, that this could be actually a, a spy novel. Um, but fiction's hard too in its own way, you know, characters speaking and dialogue. Obviously, I don't have to any of those problems when you're writing nonfiction because you're using the words, and I used a lot of them, of the people that you interviewed, the people that were there at the time, or who are experts now in the field that you're looking at, which is cyber hacking and that kind of thing, which wasn't, you know, what Hanson That could be the subject of another show. It's perhaps not going, the book's not out until next week, but it's already number one in hoaxes and deceptions on Amazon. I think it's going to be a massive bestseller, like a lot of your other work, Elise. So congratulations on that. I assume it's going to get made into a TV series as well. I, although Joe Weisberg might be a bit ambivalent because it doesn't reflect the Russians very well. Well, from your lips to God's ears, that would be great. I think it'd be a great, you know, TV discovery thing. Uh, I think you could make a documentary out of it. Absolutely. I and mean, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating case. And the voices. And important, as you say, a moral lesson. What, what else, Liz, uh, in addition to your new book, A Spy in Plain Sight, are you reading or would you suggest our, our viewers and listeners watch uh, read? You know, for my pleasure reading, I, you know, I love any fiction, we were talking Australia by Leanne Moriarty. I mean, she's just, it's fun. It's fluff, but I can just read through those in a couple of days and I love them. And then I just finished, this has been out for a while, but I just finished this book, uh, Eleanor, about Eleanor Roosevelt mm. by David Michaels. Beautiful book. Um, yeah. and, it to me. and I learned so much, not just about Eleanor, but about the period um, of the Roosevelts and that time in history. I mean, we've all studied it, but... It was just so well done and it reads, you know, you know that it's nonfiction, but it also kind of reads like a fiction. I mean, it moves quickly. It's really good. So those are the kind of things that are on my top, the top of my nightstand. But I have, a, you know, I've probably like you, I've got three or four books stacked up on my nightstand. Well, finally, Liz Will, the author of a, uh, not a, a plane in spy fight, a spy <laughs> in plain sight, a wonderful new book about, uh, Robert Hansen, one of America's most notorious spies. Uh, uh, Liz uh, Wheel, who, who runs the world in uh, late April 2022? Who's in charge? Fortunately, not Robert Hansen. No, not Robert Hansen. I mean, I would say anybody that can pony up 44, mil 44 billion, excuse me, to buy a social media app. Um, Who's that, Liz? I, I haven't heard of that. <laughs> I don't know. Figure it out. I'm sure your listeners will figure out who that is, but anybody that can do that and, you know, they're, they're in some ways running the world if you're running social media. Um, so you have to be 